Well, uh, happy Thanksgiving week. Hey, Philip. The children come home. That's, uh, yeah, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving's a great time of year. It's one of my favorite holidays, mostly because it involves gluttony and all of that. Uh, but I was uh, reminded this past week, I was in Texas uh, spending a lot of times with family uh, because tickets are cheaper if you go when no one wants to go, uh, which is, was last week. Uh, that we flew back with all these families going to Disneyland for Thanksgiving. And one of the reasons I think that that is, like last year for Thanksgiving, we went to Legoland and we did this whole package. And, and one of the reasons we do stuff like that, like go somewhere else besides home for Thanksgiving, is because being around your family and the people that raised you is hard. Like being in those, like Thanksgiving is that unique holiday where you see yourself and other people, you see and you hear things that wound you even now that you heard when you were four years old or eight years old or ten years old. Thanksgiving just exposes uh, the brokenness of our relationships that we live in. And we can talk about the brokenness of the world, like climate change and all those other things, which I, I love to do because I'm a distinguished member of the National Geographic Society. But really, the, the depth of our pain actually comes from this relational brokenness, from uh, anxiety and stress uh, and just the destructive nature of human life, which is uh, in our relationships with one another. Uh, you can even look at statistics like last year, uh, nearly 60% of Americans didn't want to go home because they were afraid of talking about the news with their aunts and their uncles and their parents. And maybe that's you as well. Uh, you can also look at the way stati- statisticians look at uh, marriage these days. So they separate successful marriages and failed marriages based on what? What do you think that is? What's a successful marriage? Not divorce. Not divorce. Like when one of you dies and the other one's still married to the person who's dead. That is the definition of a successful marriage that you just make it to the end. Nothing about uh, unity or the thriving of your spouse or the care of your... None of that. It's just you either make it or you don't. You can also look to uh, the way that people create every year uh, Silicon Valley or Silicon Beach, I guess. I don't know. I'm not really into that sort of technological world. But every year, hundreds of apps or new software is created to help people work with one another or help employers track their employees, or, or help communication happen really well. But I can tell you this much, that Slack, uh, if you know what that is, doesn't cure the passive-aggressive email. Uh, it just gives us another avenue for that. The very nature of our lives, our parents, our siblings, our spouses, our coworkers, our bosses, our employees... of the relational life that we have feels polluted like our air right now. It's like pollution to our souls, hour by hour, year by year. It's just like that. Uh, It it feels like you might even get bold one day and say, oh, I'm going to talk to my dad or my mom about all the stuff that went down. But usually those land flatter than you think. 
or at least they do for me. And that's what I love about this book of Ephesians. Uh, It's written in the context of a world exactly like ours because it's our world, where this is the minutia that we walk in, this brokenness, this sin, this pollution uh, that really makes itself visible in relationships. But the book of Ephesians sort of promises and talks about a whole different story, a whole different reality where death itself is raised up, where there's this whole cosmic universal level of redemption and uh, saving that God is doing for the people that he has chosen and that he pursues. And that that within uh, Ephesians, within Paul's framework of the world, is a God who resurrects not just our afterlife, but our life today even making whole every human relationship. It's asking the question, what if our, our family dynamic was made alive in Christ? What if our marriage was raised from death to life? What if all of the brokenness that goes back for centuries and centuries and centuries to a garden somewhere, what if all of that was reversed completely and fully? And what's exciting is Paul says... And the passage that I'm going to read today is that, that that resurrection and that hope and that making new of relationships isn't something in the future where, oh, one day uh, we'll be in heaven and we'll be floating on clouds and we won't have any problems. Then, like, my, my relationships will be whole. Like, can't wait to see my grandpa because then he won't, you know, shame me anymore because in heaven it'll be good. What Paul is saying is, no, that can start And that can happen today, that humans today can experience a thriving in their relationships because of the power of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit of God in his church creates a society of saints where their way of relating to one another is marked by love, the same love that creates the church to begin with. And so with that, let's read... Ephesians 5 and 6. I think I'm going to read about 35 verses or so. So I hope everyone's like ready to buckle in. We'll start with chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip down, and then we'll read even halfway through chapter 6. Uh, and these are some verses that Tripp has already taught on, so I'm not reteaching them. I'm just saying it's like the whole context of it. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then the second half of verse 18 says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Then chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be go, be, go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up with the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours as in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. That is God's word. Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, he says, Be imitators of God. Walk in love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul is, is saying, be like Jesus. And, and Tripp taught that very well and beautifully, that, that Jesus was born to be a sacrifice, that his whole life was motivated by this love of emptying and giving himself completely. Uh, that's one of the ways that Christianity is so strange, that, that the pinnacle and that the hero of our faith thought and acted and lived as if giving up all power and gift and abilities was the way. That Jesus lived his entire life selflessly for people who did not deserve it and did not pay him anything in return. Walk in the way of love as Christ did. Paul's saying, we live in a world and a whole philosophy that says, hey, everyone should do what's good for them, And it all will work out. If everyone just takes the cards that God dealt them and plays them to their own advantage, everything works out. This is how our society should run. And that's not a new thing with capitalism. Like, we can debate that later. This is an old, old thing. Whatever position you're born in life, take your cards, play them for your own advantage. Jesus switches that and changes it completely for us. Instead of us living life and living in this communion of saints, saying we should do what's good for us, we instead say, I want to love you because Christ loved me. 
I live because Christ raised me from the dead. Therefore, I live to serve and help others experience the hope of Jesus. I know the love of Jesus. The love of God walked among us. It's what's so great about this season we're going to enter into with Advent. It's this message and this reality that love itself walked in our place, in this world. And that the way of of Jesus' love is to rule the world. To be the king with all authority and with all power. And what he does with it, the way he rules the world, is the very healing of the world. The the way that he decides to, to be the king is to give his whole status up. And Paul says, be imitate him. We imitate his sacrifice. We imitate his love. We follow him. And so when I read this passage, I greet it with tons of excitement. I really genuinely do. Because this is what happens when every relationship experiences the love of God. When love comes to church, this is what it looks like. When the love dwells richly within us and deeply within us, this is relational beauty. He says in verse 21, which I read, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That at the core of Christianity is not just a hero who submits everything and gives up everything and serves everything, but at the center of Christianity is that we and the way we relate to one another is yielding and difference and considering one another with substantial weight. And here is uh, the thing. There's a direct correlation to how much time we spend listening to and observing Jesus and how we treat one another. There's a direct link between how we view Jesus and how significant and worthwhile he is and how we live like Jesus together. It's not about strategies or coming up with better meal plans or any of those things. And that's how, or like just mustering up the energy to organize our times better. The the actual distinction of what makes us love one another and be the kind of community that we all long for is when Christ is revered. When Christ is the one who has put everything together and every broken part of our lives together, when we look at him as the most significant one, the church actually looks like the church. It looks like a group of people that will fight for justice in the small things and the big things. It looks like a group of people that will use their financial resources for the benefit of others without any return. It looks like people who will fight for forgiveness and reconciliation. Why? Because Jesus is the most significant one. And we submit to one another, putting our desires, our passions, our gifts, our skills, not to our own service, but to the service of of one another. Or as Paul writes in another letter uh, in Philippians, chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Look not only 
to your own interests, but the interests of others. That the distinct mark of a person made alive in Christ is someone who submits everything to God. And this, I believe, is the the linchpin of this entire passage. This, This question of how does the love of Christ and the power of His resurrection that comes through His own death take shape in the community and the relationships of the ordinary. The relationships of our lives. Because I will tell you this, if Jesus just rose from the dead and we submit all things to him, and then it doesn't affect how we treat one another. It's simply lip service. There's been a lot of uh, internet digital ink spilt on what's wrong with the church in America today, or what's wrong with the church that you might have grown up with or experienced from far off. And a lot of it... uh, gets down to mechanics and the way that we talk and how we're supposed to be and strategies even. But it really is, is are we willing to see Jesus as the most significant in the room? The most significant, most central in our lives, and does that affect the way we love and live with one another? And so Paul talks really practically about that. First, wives and husbands, then children and parents, and then bond servants and masters. And so we'll start with wives and husbands. He says in verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything to their husbands. And I know what you're all thinking. We must sit under the weight of this question. What does it mean for the church to submit everything to Christ? Maybe that's not the question you're thinking. (laughs) That's the, you know, if you want to do like good hermeneutics, which is the fancy word for reading and studying the Bible, the main question in these verses is, what does it mean for the church to submit to Christ? Uh, You may remember uh, that Jesus uh, died, he rose from the dead, normal stuff. And then he gathered all of his followers together, which you would think after doing something like that, it would be thousands, but it was dozens. And they all got together on top of this hill, and Jesus said to them, All authority on, on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. And from that moment on, The church, each member, each congregation, from time then all the way till time in the future, has had one singular task, to give everything to Jesus, to worship him as the king and the ruler of all, to to see him and to worship him as the stature of the king of all authority, that there's nothing under the soil or above the soil that he does not have domain and control over that he doesn't have the right to, that he doesn't even graciously and patiently work out his will of grace and love in. Everything that the church does is about that. 
And everything that the church does starts with our lives. Our money, our talents, our personalities, the things that are wounds for us, the things that we found healing in, our grief, our excitement, our relationships, our lives. The church exists from that moment on to give that in surrender to Jesus. All that you have belongs to him. All, the, all of the time that you have on this earth belongs to him. Every beat of your heart, every blood circulation is his. The, the purpose of the church begins to be, and has always been, you, God, are the king of all things. How can I be a servant to you? Jesus, after he says, all authority has been given to me, go. He tells us to make our whole lives and the whole purpose of our lives and the church is to make disciples and to teach them their identity in him. And he sends us and he says, I will be with you always. That the whole purpose of each of our lives as individuals and collectively is about making his purpose known and happen. It's about living into a story where we belong to his mission. What do we do with all of these things? How do we know if we've given all things under him? How have we submitted all things, everything to Jesus? It's when we live and participate and view our entire purpose in life as his purpose in this world. That is what it means to submit all things to Christ. And that is the purpose of the church. And then wives, Paul is saying here, lead the church in knowing and being all that we were created to be. Wives make it clear what it means to live in this drastic reversal of the curse. That, that wives, when they love and care for and serve and give their gifts and their abilities and their time and their future to their husbands, we all are led as the church in saying, that's what I'm supposed to do with everything that I have. It's, it's this colossal uh, shift in what's happened in relationships from long ago. Where... Uh, Wives will pull down their husbands. They'll try to make them their savior in life or make them their financial security or make them uh, the ones to blame or the ones to guilt or the ones to shame. Try to control them. Try to manipulate them. Try to cheat them. But instead, the gospel reorients our lives as we begin to seek to support, build up, encourage, serve, and speak life into our husbands, being companions and partners and friends and lovers, viewing all of life as a gift to the other, no longer plotting the demise of the other or keeping accounts of the other, but freely giving your life to the other. The way that the church freely gives our lives to Jesus now, the second thing that this passage brings up that would be important to figure out is what does it mean for these men to be heads of the wife? What does it mean for Christ to be the head of the church? He goes on and describes that. 
says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing, her being the church, by the washing of the water with the word, that he, Jesus, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that the church, she, might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. What does it mean for Christ to be the head of the church and to love the church? There's this reality of this, uh, what some scholars call this cruciform view of authority and power. Uh, cruciform is just this fancy way of saying a cross-shaped view of power and authority. And Jesus completely undoes and reshapes our expectations of what power and authority mean. When it says Christ is the head of the church, he immediately talks talks about how God gave himself up for the church. Jesus undoes our expectations. Because with Jesus, power and authority is about unending sacrifice and it's all about love. Jesus sets his eyes on the church and he leaves his Father in heaven and he submits his entire life to the will of the Holy Spirit. And in Philippians 2, 6-8, through 8, he says this, Jesus, though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to boast about, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or a doulos, which is a word we'll talk about in a minute. But being born in the likeness of man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. That Jesus surrenders every ounce of gift and ability and skill and his life and his status, he surrenders it first. He surrenders it as the initiator accounting that that to have us to be holy and blameless or spotless and all the things that Paul just talks about in Ephesians, he accounts that to be a far greater use of his life and his being than to be in heaven. To experience equality with God because he was God. Jesus uh, has this view of what it means to be a person that's completely different than ours. Instead of playing his cards to his own advantage, he gives his cards away. He surrenders his divine status to be a divine sacrifice and offering. He also challenges people. He heals people. He teaches them. He instructs them. He uses everything he has to see us come alive. Jesus, who has all power and authority and right to be worshipped, decides to empty himself. And that's a phrase that gets used often, not just here, but throughout the New Testament, that Jesus somehow emptied himself. Meaning that he spent every ounce of energy, like calories, every, every pumping of blood, he used everything to make you holy and blameless and alive. 
because he walked in love. And so, if you are a husband, and you read this, and you see that Jesus, who had all this power and authority, uses it all to see the church become whole, you would be right to assume that you were created, formed, made, at least in part, but a very significant part, you were made to give your life up for the flourishing and the thriving of your spouse. Just as Jesus gave himself up so that you might live, you give up your entire self so that your wife would thrive and be whole and run and enjoy everything that is in this creation, which is itself similarly a dramatic reversal from husbands blaming their wives for everything that's wrong in this world from husbands using women to uh, shatter their lives and their sexuality, it now becomes about husbands giving themselves up completely, walking in the way of Jesus. When husbands, when we refuse to do this, it isn't just abstractly immoral, like some random thing written on a book somewhere that we should all do because it's, it's better than not doing that. When we refuse to empty ourselves, using our, our, all of our gifts, our abilities, our professions, everything for the sake of our wives, it's actually evidence of a, reje- of a rejection of the power of God's love while we search for another love. This is why uh, you know, affairs are so painful, because we're saying the love of God was not sustainable to compel me to love my wife so fully. Instead, I will find love elsewhere. Also, when husbands refuse to sacrifice everything that they have for the thriving of our wives, it's evidence that the church itself does not grasp the heights and the depths and the links of God's love shown towards us. And we are looking elsewhere, too. This passage is saying, uh, in really no uh, uncertain terms, that to be a husband is to die. To be the one who gives up. This means sort of practically that husbands would pursue the hearts and the passions and the desires of their spouse. That we would long to know them and see them. That every wife would be known by their husband. And know what they desire to do and what they love and what they long for. That a husband would spend hours kind of calculating and examining the skills and the abilities and the, and the passions that drive this person forward. And the husband would ask this question, how could I in some way lay down my life so that they can do and be all that God had made them to be and do? Husbands, this means pursuing hard conversations like forgiveness or like nudging her to live a life worthy of her calling as Paul describes here in chapter 4. We did that a few weeks ago. This means knowing the needs of your spouse and deferring all that you have to meet those needs. Even if the 
the need it costs you pain and suffering and death on your end, you would freely give it up. That when your wife dies or when you die, you will have spent everything that you have and everything that you are for her to be a thriving, wonderful human being. That at the end of, of the, your whole family's life, everyone would gather around and say, yeah, dad was pretty great, but man, mom, what a life she lived. What about the places that she went and the way that she was committed to following and knowing God? What a life she actually had. Husbands, this also means when hard things come up and when you know that you're both called to walk in them, whatever uh, grief or pain or even just challenging thing that you're called to, you would say, I'm going with you in those things. Not abstaining from the hard things, but pursuing closeness in the hard things. Even when you and your wife know that God has pushed you and nudged you to to go into places and to do things that are very hard and costly, you would say, I'm going to be there in all of it. Probably starting with children, if you're blessed to have them, but continuing on into every good thing. Just as Christ says at the end of his great commission, I will be with you always to the ends of the age. Husbands say to their wives, I will be with you in all of these hard things. And so if you think these two passages about wives and husbands are about who's in charge, I swear to my Father in heaven, I will be so angry. Because it has nothing to do with who gets to decide what to buy and the meal plan and who eats what. It doesn't even have to do with where you move or what profession you have. If you think this passage has to do who gets a vote on what to name the child or not. Or who is supposed to be more productive. Or who is supposed to be worthy and which one's worthy and noble and which one is unworthy and unnoble. Which one's rotten and which one's weak? If that's what we take from this passage, we're going to have to read Ephesians all over again. Which is fine. I love, we can preach it over and over again. <laughs> I've already got the outlines written. It's easy next year. It'll be great. But when you read it all the way through, even when you read the whole story of the world, What you see is what Paul's describing here is about an undoing of sin and a recreating of what marriage was always intended to be. In this verse 33 where he says, Let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband's. The real dilemma to us actually living out this passage would be husbands and wives not knowing what to do next and making really easy decisions but very long Because the wife will be saying, no, I just want to support you. I just want to love you. And then the husband is saying, I just want to give my life up for you. So I don't know if we should have pizza tonight or not. (laughs) Like that is the ramification of this passage. That we would be so committed to honoring one another. 
to giving our lives to one another, to give all that we have, that everyone around us would have to say, those two people love each other with complete sacrifice. And that's why marriage is where this call that Paul gives in 20, verse 21, this call to submit to one another, marriage is the battleground where that gets fought. This, Paul writes, as a single person, he urges the church to be who it was called to be and walk in the way of love. And he's saying that one of the greatest signs that a church understands that is how much dying the husbands are doing and how much leading the wives are in us knowing how to submit all things to Jesus. One of the greatest signs of the church being healthy and thriving is when husbands and wives have to defer to one another to the point that they begin praying all the time about what they're supposed to do in life because they can't make the decision together because they've so committed to serving one another. That then husbands and wives get together and pray to God as the master and ruler of their entire lives and say, what should we do and how should we emulate and be imitators of God? Submission to one another does not mean rules, it means love. It means receiving the love of Christ that would so compel you to give yourself up to a spouse who, by the way, is completely unworthy of that. Now on to uh, children and parents, because I have a time limit. He says in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. First, I... Uh, this, this verse, I believe, is definitely applicable to children and parents like in the home really little. But this command, which is basically a, a regurgitating of what Moses gives uh, the people in the Ten Commandments, is more about adult children and adult parents. It's written for uh, people like us. When it says children, don't think of the little kids running around there, but I just ask you to think of your own self. Because fathers and sons, right? They make like 20 movies a year about fathers and sons. Uh, Even the superhero movies are about fathers and sons. It's about mothers and daughters too, right? Like how how much pain and energy and soul-searching... The reason that counseling is a very viable profession is because all of us have fathers and mothers. (laughs) Even if you have really great ones that did all the things that you're supposed to do in the psychological development of a child, you will, like me, who had great parents, get to however old I am, 33, and still be seeing counselors talking about things that happened when you were a child. These relationships, a child with their parents, and you are a child, has more to do with how we relate to this world than any other thing. 
The way that your parents coddle you and kiss you and hug you and the smells that you experience between zero and four has more to do with how you will respond in life than what degree you get in college or what sports you played in high school. It's that fundamental. Honestly, these verses are more difficult for me to talk about than the ones on husbands and wives. You might think that's insane. But it's true. Because often the wounds that we carry for our entire lives, these big, gaping, emotional scars, that when we respond uh, so irrationally at the dinner table when something goes really odd, or this way that we get frustrated at work, or the way that we feel pointless and unvaluable, those wounds often match the instruments that our parents used. Talking to family members about politics at Thanksgiving is way easier than examining the wounds that you've experienced. Than sitting there and understanding the pain and the patterns and the grief from your own childhood. A childhood that was led by parents that were trying to do their best, but also for many of us, led by childhoods, childhoods led by parents that weren't even there. And here Paul says, honor and obey them. Obey and honor. Throughout the Old Testament, the two things we're supposed to do with God is to trust and obey Him. Here Paul and also Moses before him is saying, obey and honor your parents. And just to be clear that this honoring doesn't mean that we agree with them. It doesn't mean that we sugarcoat the past. It doesn't mean that we continually open the door for more and more wounding. But honor does mean that we receive and we consider them. And we forgive them. And we pursue truth in our childhoods. It means that we love our parents even when they're not able to receive that love, even when they're not worthy of that love. And when we uh, do this, they stop being the punchlines of our jokes. Uh, That's what my family does when we get together is we make fun of my parents, right? When you honor and obey your parents, you stop making them the punchlines of your jokes because all that is is just a smokescreen for what's really boiling inside of you. We don't neglect our parents. We don't put them away. It means parents are definitely an excuse for life, but we don't hold them as the power over our lives. To honor and respect and to obey our parents means that we found a good, good father who actually loves us unconditionally and adores us and affirms us. And we're no longer looking to our dads to say, you've finally done it. You've really succeeded. It means that we put our parents in their proper position as people who gave up so much of their lives for us. As people who were tasked 
to see a new creation formed and grow in a womb and then delivered and then had to figure out what to do with you. And when we live this way, this is the resurrection life. It's bitterness-free. It's resentment-free. When he says, we live long in the land and things will go well for you. It's the language of the good life. It's also the language of a lifelong endeavor. To, to pursue being at a place where you can love your parents instead of hate your parents. To love the father that was literally never there. To have for them your best desire prayed for them. To get to the point where there can be substantial forgiveness for your mothers. So that you do not carry around these boulders anymore. Paul is saying, experience life. Honor your parents. And you will taste life. He also goes on to talk about fathers. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. There's a long biblical history of fathers who are not good. Fathers who provoke their children to anger. Fathers who uh, put their children in such circumstances that uh, it often leads to murder. There's uh, Adam with Cain and Abel. There's Isaac with Esau and Jacob, where Isaac sort of uh, uh, takes one son that he loves, Esau, and lets his wife take another son, and they're twins, and they pit them against each other their entire lives. There's David's sons, Abner and Absalom, which is a tragedy. But then there's also a long history of our earthly fathers. And here's the thing for us that are parents. How will we become people who speak life into our children? How will they know the blessing that is to be alive? How will we give them an inheritance, not of you know, trust funds, but an inheritance of hope and peace and truth and justice? Side note, if you do leave them a trust fund, that's also good, Right? That we would love and work so hard that our children would be blessed is wonderful, like financially, but that also we would make our lives about instructing them in the way of God's love, to be imitators of God's love. But this itself is a tall task. I used to make jokes saying that, like, you know, I need to start saving money for my children's counseling now. But I'm realizing, I think I'm going to be 60 years old in a counseling office talking about what I have done to my children. The ways in which I have sinned against them. That God is actually a good father is the only hope that we have. That our earthly fathers are just small glimpses of what he's actually like. That he loved us so much that he surrenders, that he gives, that he calls us his own. As John says uh, in his letter, one of Jesus' apostles, he says, See how great the Father's love is for us that we would be called children of God. That we would just get that name to throw around. That's a great love. But he goes on and he says, And that we are his children of God. 
how great a father's love is for us. Lastly, he talks about bond servants and masters. This word doulos was used for slaves. It was used for people that were indentured servants. It was used for people uh, who had to commit their lives to serving one singular family generation after generation. It was also a word that Jesus ascribes to himself often, and then it's a word that he ascribes here uh, in verse 5 as a status of people within the church, but then also who we all are in Christ, that we are slaves to God. And in here, Paul talks about what it means to be a person who is controlled by another. And how do we respond to that? How do we live within that? How do we live within knowing that a bank owns our house, not you? How do we live within the world knowing that these people and these corporations own and and drive our living? How do we show up to work? How do we serve? How do we live? Jesus and Paul says just really quickly here, we would do everything as if we're doing it to Christ. We do all of it as if we were doing it for Jesus because we are Christ's bondservants. And we're doing the will of God from the heart. We're rendering service with goodwill to God, not to one another, not to man. Here, Paul ends this whole section by describing the fact that everything that we do, regardless of what status we are in life, It's not for money, it's not for paycheck, it's not for masters, it's not for bosses. Everything we do is actually for Jesus. Every bit of it is his. And what we receive in return is this remarkable resurrection. And that we've been given that so freely. Nothing that our bosses or our masters could ever give us. Nothing that your work could ever give you will even compare on a chart to what we've received from Jesus as our king. Meaning, whatever fame you come across, whatever status you achieve in your vocation, however many people that are underneath you at work, it will never even get on the chart for comparing to what Christ has given you in this life. Last week, Uh, I got to have lunch with a really close friend of mine. We were both pastors in Oregon together. Uh, It's really, he's a great friend. He's, uh, yeah, he's a pastor of this really large church, and he uh, actually stepped down around the same time that I moved here, and he has gotten a counseling degree, and now he counsels people. Uh, Monty Schmidt, uh, he will not do Skype counseling. I talked to him about it when he was here. Uh, He's a dear friend, but he, he, practices uh, clinical counseling. He's a licensed counselor, and he specializes in a therapy called restoration therapy, uh, which is really a gospel and a clinical integrated like approach to, th- to you know, giving people therapy. And this is, why, this is why he thinks that it works. He told me uh, in the middle of our lunches, he says, we're all just so unsure that we're loved. We're all just deeply unsure if anyone loves us. He says, he told me that the dominant uh, sort of turning point in all human life 
and relationships, the dominant pain that we experience is in our appeals for love and our reaction from rejected love. That all humans are simply living this life where they're trying to to tell someone out there, I love you. And then all that we do is process the rejection or the receiving of that love. And that is the turning point or the cycle that every single human is undergoing all the time. And then he told me, my friend Monty told me, that is why I do counseling. That's why I'm a professional counselor. That's why I use this approach called restoration therapy because the only way for a person to be restored, whether it's addiction or just anger issues or lust issues, whatever it might be, the only way for anyone to be restored is for them to know without any uncertain terms that they are loved. All relational brokenness comes down to that vagueness of us not knowing who loves us. Ephesians, this entire book, is a letter that simply says, you are loved. From the beginning of creation, from before you were born, from world events that were happening 2,000 years ago, to the long stream of things of God's pursuit for you, is that you are loved. You are loved with an unending, uh, never giving up, always stopping love. A love that doesn't go away if you please God our Father or not. A love that doesn't go away if you're the kind of husband that you're supposed to be. Or the kind of father that you are supposed to be. God looks at all that you've done and all that you will do and says, You are my child and I love you. And that is what we get to imitate in all of these relationships. That is the joy of being a husband, of being a wife, of being a child, of having parents, of working in unjust systems, is that all of it points to and is this opportunity to be people that imitate God's love. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your remarkable worthiness, that you are, yeah, you are worthy of our entire lives, that you're the good king that lays down his life. God, I pray for us as we process and talk about these things that uh, I I do understand are are hard to uh, think about with the lenses that we have. God, I pray that you would give us all grace to receive this word and to receive uh, the scriptures with joy and with delight and that we would see uh, just clearly the things that you've called us to do and the ways you've called us to die, uh, the ways in which you get to uh, lead us uh, that are humbling. God, I pray for us to be a church, even as we come and take communion, that we would be a church Uh, that's so humble, we're deferring and yielding and supporting one another with all that we have, that we would put 
uh, other people's interests above our own because we've received that exact same thing from you. Amen.